0: As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Rami Ishmael, co-founder of Lambie, and creator of PressKit and GameDev.World. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Rami, how are you? I'm pretty good, how are you? Very well. Um, it's It's been a busy time. It always is though, I'm sure it has been for you. And, <laughs> it uh,
1: always is.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's a dull moment these days. Even with COVID at its absolute peak.
1: I mean, honestly, things might actually be busier than normally for me because you know now everything and everybody does everything online and obviously a lot of what I do was travel. Uh, which meant yeah, right. that at least there was some sort of pacing between it, spend some time in an airplane, spend some time in an airport. Um, now it's just anybody from anywhere at any time can reach out, have a call, do a meeting. So for me, it's actually busier than ever at the moment.
0: That's that's a really interesting perspective on the whole thing. But yeah, I guess you could get on the plane and consciously not connect to the, the plane's Wi-Fi if the, the plane has Wi-Fi. Right. Whereas now you're constantly, constantly connected, and I suppose maybe highlighted by the fact that we're chatting at what is 4:30 a.m. your time. So, um, I really appreciate you coming aboard the show and and joining. I'm glad for we this. could make it happen. Yeah. So this is Dev Diary a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that has led to this current point. Rami, before we get to your time in the actual industry and the, the many credits and, and accomplishments that you've you've made and earned over the journey, I'd love to rewind back to some of your first gaming experiences. Do you recall what the first game was or the, what the, some of the first games were that you played?
1: Yeah, because it was also the first game I modded. Um, oh, the, um nice. I, I must have been five or six years old and we got this hand-me-down IBM 386, I think. Um, from an uncle of mine and uh, my dad needed it for work. So this engineer came over and installed some sort of GUI on it, some sort of graphical interface. It wasn't Windows. Yep. It was it was something different. And um, the goal was that it would lock away MS-DOS. So my dad never would have to touch that because he was not computer savvy. My mom didn't use computers. Um, so the idea was that it would be very simple to use and – uh, that engineer failed at doing that um the, yeah. the GUI was there but there was still a way to exit the DOS and I probably thanked my entire career to that um oh, all right okay
0: because uh,
1: in MS-DOS I found um first of all I found a big challenge in that I am Dutch Egyptian so yes. I didn't speak English so nothing about MS-DOS made sense to me
0: but, but not overly uh user-friendly in that respect
1: no, and also if you can't figure out what that dir like dir is like directory or cd is change. There, what what does change mean? Is that a word? I don't know that word from Dutch. I don't know that word from Arabic either. Yeah, right. So, um, Good point. It was just question marks for me, but thankfully the word help in Dutch is the is is you know the part of the etymology that led to the English word help. So um, we something. have that one. in... Uh, so help worked, and uh, that way I, I learned some of the words I could type that would do things. And I didn't know what they would do because I couldn't read the explanation, but I knew that they did something. And eventually it led me to Basic and Basic was a programming language that came with two tutorial files. Uh, the one was called Nibbles, and that was Snake. And the other one was called Gorillas, and it was, um, you remember the game Scorch? Yes, yeah no, the one yeah the tanks and you type like an angle I mean, going and you type a long velocity. way back but it's right. going
0: a long way back, but yes, I do I do remember the name
1: so gorillas was scorch, but instead of tanks, it was gorillas, and instead of bullets, you threw bananas at each other and you would enter an angle and a velocity, and then the gorilla would throw a banana under that angle. you could play one player or you could play two players, so you could play against an AI or you could play with in my case a sibling right.
0: This is all starting to come rushing back. Right.
1: So, <laughs> I somehow learned how to run that. I don't remember how I did that. What I do remember is that one day I was very curious about all the words that would appear on the screen before the game started. And I didn't know that back then, but that was the code, right? That was the, the actual code of the game. And one day I yep. just got curious about it, and I started scrolling through it, not with a mouse, with, with keys, because we didn't have a mouse. And I found in all this English that I didn't understand, I found one line that I understood, because it was the text from the main menu. It just said Microsoft. Oh, right, okay. And I deleted that line, and I typed in my name. And then I pressed run again. And now when it booted up, instead of saying Microsoft Gorillaz, it just said Rami and
0: there's your first taste
1: it the fascination that you could change words and letters and then a game changes was it's a a, a rush of fascination of of power of whatever it was i felt it it never let go of me that curiosity of what can you do by changing letters so uh, i became a programmer
0: well I mean I'd imagine at you know at the age of 5 as you mentioned there you've you've come to associate various forms of entertainment as being fairly one dimensional in a sense it's it's you potentially you know just sitting down and just watching what's presented to you and here there's that ability to interact which is revolutionary for a lot of a lot of people when they first make that discovery whatever their age but then for you to the, that extra layer of you discovering but hang on I can actually alter the right. interta- like what's being presented to me must have been must be mind blowing
1: I- I honestly didn't care much for games after that in that uh, all I cared about is how can I change them. And for most of my life, that has been my fascination. Like I like games. I like playing games. But for me, uh, for a long time, the the biggest question is what can I do with this? Like How can I break or change or modify it? How can I make my own levels? How can I change the textures? How can I um, flip something that's not supposed to be flipped for me? Most of my early gaming memories is, is stuff like that, right? Um, so
0: so was there a key point for you where you realized that actually pursuing this in a, a somewhat professional capacity was the way to go? I mean, I've, I've got docu- uh, written down here that for a while there you were doing some tutoring and you were a teaching assistant. Uh, of course, I, I had JW on the show about six to eight months ago now and he was talking about how the two of you met on the train and how, how the relationship there kind of began. Um I've also got in the kingdom from 2004 listed there so there's a few different kind of points that we could really jump off from there but uh was there a particular point where you realized this is something that I want to pursue may- maybe make it my life to pursue this Not
1: really I think it kind of happened it kind of happened like the here's the thing the thing that that mostly happened in my case is at quite a number of moments in my life Somebody nudged me in the direction of making video games. And um, that was true for my elementary school teacher who realized that I wasn't being an annoying kid. I was just being a board kid. And he set up a chess program and a computer program. And the chess program was interesting because th- they didn't just teach us chess. They also um, sort of encouraged us to come up with our own rules, right? Change the order of the pieces on the board or uh, change how a pawn works or uh, every... Yeah every piece works like a rook right like what happens so we would come up with all these chess variants we didn't know that was game design we were just doing you know chess uh,
0: He's having fun with the game in established right. formula
1: and the other um and the other uh, thing the computer program obviously led to me spending more time even more time behind computers this one was a windows 3.11 one so i just kind of kept going then so it uh, never stopped? Yeah, then uh, the map editors were a big thing. Jack Rabbit had a map editor. StarCraft had a map editor. All of these games had map editors. And then um, in high school, uh, I was always bored during computer class. So I installed just a bunch of stuff, like learned to do network stuff to secretly create a land that we could play games over. Which the um, teachers loved, I'm sure. Uh, they never knew. Um, oh, okay, right. The um, we um, we created a land to play tribes and quake and whatever we could get running on those really like not very good uh, school computers. Um, and then I would modify maps. I would make things to play with my school friends. And then I um, ended up like messing around with lots of programming language, including one called Dark Basic, which was obviously an offshoot of Basic. And uh, Dark Basic, there was a guy uh, who was making space sims. He was up in Boise, Idaho, and I joined that community. Um, and I helped a little bit with a few things here and there. But really what was what was special to me was that this guy, must have been 16 or 15 or something, this guy was yeah. selling these games. right? He was just a guy. He was not a, a team. He was not a big company. He was just a guy making space sims. Yeah, they were called Star Wraith. And uh, the Star Wraith games, um, they were hugely influential for me. Like, I i, I was uh, was a member of the forums for a long time. Uh, I gave lots of feedback, like, sparred about game design, did a few assets, helped out every here and there, and um, just kind of became part of that that small group of people that would help out, right? Yeah. And, and these games were getting sold, and um, I was just incredibly inspired by that. So my idea of what a game should look like is, like, my idea of what that process should look like was very much built on the things I learned uh, from yeah, the, the Star Wars 3D games, right? Um, which were commercial products. Well, um, at that point, I reached that point in my life where I had to, to figure out what I wanted to do for education and I, I genuinely did not think game design was a real thing uh, as a job uh, besides, like, what the Star Wraith guy was doing. Um, I thought that was a foreign job, right? Like, I,
0: yeah, okay. There's certainly the, at that point um, parts of the world, I guess, that you might associate with being,
1: you know, yeah, Japan, associated with America. games, but
0: and yeah, that was it, and ever else, and even here in Australia, thinking the same sort of thing, like, no, that's that's not a thing that happens here.
1: Right? Yeah, you had Miyamoto, and you had John, or Chris. Yeah, that was it. Um, you didn't. You did You didn't have a. Dutch name, you definitely didn't have an Arabic name, right? So I just kind of didn't think there was a games industry in the Netherlands and uh, then by coincidence I stumbled upon two different schools that did game-related courses one of them a games programming one one of them a game design one I enrolled for both um, got accepted to both then had to make a choice messed up the paperwork uh, which in the Netherlands (laughs) means you don't get to study for a year and uh oh, I then sold computers at a retail store for a year um that actually ended up being really helpful in that it taught me to negotiate and like sort of like helped me with talking to people uh yeah. you can imagine that you know nerdy computer kid didn't do spectacularly well in the social awards at uh, at the elementary school um the um the second time I came around, I decided that I wanted to do the design school. And yeah, that's where I met JW in the train, like on the episode that you mentioned before. Yes. Uh, we instantly disliked each other. and uh, when That's we always been out, one of the
0: most fascinating parts of the whole thing for me, is the, is the fact that you kind of grated, I guess, on one another from straight out the gate.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you have to imagine, for me, games was... So, so the first thing you have to understand is, is Jan Willem is Dutch, right? Yes. Dutch, Dutch. And what that means is that it's very much a culture in which you do what you love, right? And that's encouraged. You do what you love. I'm Dutch Egyptian. Egypt doesn't work like that. In Egypt, you can be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, or a disgrace to the family. Those are your four options, right? Yeah, okay. Because do- those jobs make money. And money is how you become independent money is how you prove your worth money is how you prove that you're ready for an adult life so for me
0: from a young status age thing right
1: that was important that's how you prove yeah. that you're you're an individual um so for me this idea of making games for art making games because they were uh interesting experiences that made no sense to me why would you do that wouldn't you want to make money wouldn't you want a stable life like to be able to pay for a house and a family and food stuff like that um that was not how JW looked at it. Like for me, I looked at this from the perspective of the Star Wars games. I looked at this at the perspective of an Egyptian. JW looked at this from the perspective of a kid who was making um, what thirty games a month.
0: Yeah, and kind of chasing a dream of sorts.
1: Yeah, I'm not even sure if he was he was aware of what his dream was back in those days. Um, he just made. He just made. He couldn't stop making, and he was very. Um, very hit or miss but when he hit it was very good right Um, and I think that's kind of where our first connection started was he thought I was a suit and I thought he was the most obnoxious hipster I've ever met in my life <laughs> just infuri- like infuriating right like everything related to money was just instantly he was out he just he just didn't care. He just he was there for the art, and and nothing else. And nothing else. And I was there for money, according to him. Right? I just wanted to make games, but I I didn't believe in making games without earning money. I didn't think that was that you wasn't wanted to good be able
0: enough to make a living at the same time.
1: I wanted to prove to my parents that I was going to be an adult, right?
0: Yeah. Um. That makes sense.
1: So, when we dropped out, due to a lot of. A lot of reasons but mostly um school sort of trying to pull a power play um
0: that was this oh, i think i did some reading about this this was uh, basically a case of like the the school trying to to claim your work because it was kind of done under their umbrella i suppose
1: right yeah so in the second yeah. year uh the first year was actually awesome the first year was great like You have to imagine i was a programmer and the school was like teaching me art and art history and like drawing and sound design and uh, stuff like that where i was like oh crap there's all this other stuff right like i'm i just thought i was becoming a good programmer and that would help me make games but no here was the school teaching me about design and interaction and um, opening
0: up your eyes to a lot of other disciplines i suppose right like
1: uh, methods of thinking uh, brainstorming techniques, all of this interesting stuff, and then the second year, which is kind of like more of that. Um, if I'm interested in something, and you give me a, a breadcrumb, I will chase that breadcrumb down until I can make a bread. Right? Like I just I I will not stop researching it. So by the time we reached the second year, I had read every book about every field that they were trying to teach.
0: Ooh. Which didn't make sense. So they had nothing left. They had nothing left to provide you at that point, I suppose.
1: Really, nothing. I was already making commercial games. The things they were teaching me, I all had already read about. Um, and in terms of like job opportunity, it didn't feel like they were leading anywhere particularly good. So I just, I just started my own project. And this is, this would be a common theme in my life. Um, I just start the thing. I just I just do it myself, right. So I did it myself, and the way I was looking at things, I needed a team. So I started recruiting the best students I could find that would be interested in working with me on an Xbox Live Arcade game, which <laughs> was that completely unreasonable for a student. Um, Xbox Live Arcade was not like ID at Xbox right now. This was like an actual part of certified Xbox development.
0: Yeah, there's still a, a few arbiters and gatekeepers along the way.
1: That was that was like still a like you still needed to be an actual games company to do that back then. Indie didn't exist the way we understand it now, right? Um, So it was still a a multi-layered, complex system of getting onto Xbox Live Arcade. But we started on the game. I got a good team together, and in my talks with Xbox Live Arcade, I actually got the game through the first or second stage of negotiations, and things were going really well. Um, the problem was that my school, my school used to do this thing where they would get external clients and in exchange for those clients taking students, they would do projects for them um, yeah. using the students effectively. So free labor for the companies and in exchange, the companies would take um, take students as, as employees uh, when they graduate.
0: Which is a real shame and we hear stories about this sort of thing in other in other fields as well, kind of right. around, the, around the world, I suppose.
1: Yeah, so they needed those students. So to shut the project down because part of it was created at school and anything created at school is owned by school. So I read the contract and it said that that was only true as long as the student was at school. So I quit uh, to get the rights back. Now obviously I was that, the only one I was the only one who quit um, The team was almost 20 people Nobody else I,
0: Yeah that's. I suppose that's a lot to ask of everyone else To also exactly. you know, to do
1: the same um, But I had promised The team that I would do everything I could to make that game happen At the start of the project And I felt like I should keep to my word Right so I quit And obviously couldn't continue the project So the project died Now <sighs> Of all the people on school, there was one other guy who quit. It just happened to be that obnoxious hipster. <laughs> um, now, the interesting thing about that is that Jan was very good at starting projects. Because he would start 30 a month, right? He would start so many a month, and some of them would be okay, some of them would be bad. But he started many.
0: But finishing was the difficulty?
1: He was not capable of finishing anything. Uh, he, he finished things in like game jams that lasted forty eight hours and he was really good at adding polish, but like actually creating something that could be played by people um without him, without a forum post, you know, to go with it. Um something with a start and an end, that was just not what he did. Um and neither was the business, the the talking to a company to make money. That was just not what he did. Um, now me on the other hand I was the opposite I wasn't good at starting games Because I hadn't done that very frequently But I was really good at wrapping things up And I was pretty good at like talking to businesses I had gotten a student project uh, Into Xbox Live Arcade Like actual, the actual process of launching it
0: So we decided and So to... I guess despite all those differences you're the, You've become the perfect pairing at that stage Exactly what the other half needed
1: Right We. I could do what he could not he could do what I couldn't and uh, we decided that we would do a project together because now we were dropouts and we kind of needed money so um we decided to do one project and that project was going to be a prototype he was making called crates from hell and uh um, oh, so that
0: became super crate box
1: it did become super Crate box it was very different at this stage um what, what the main mechanic of super crate boxes is this really elegant um there's a crate on the field And it kind of works like Mario Bros, like the original one, you know, where the the, uh, spiky things would come down and the POW block, that thing.
0: Yeah, I know the one.
1: Kind of like that, but instead of getting points for anything, you only got points for reaching a crate. And if you reached a crate, your your weapon would randomly swap to one of 13 weapons available in the game, and uh, you would get one point. And then a new crate would spawn. That was super crate box. It was super simple. It was super elegant. Um, it forced you to keep thinking quickly to, to stay on your toes. It never get harder. It was just you. It was a battle of attrition with against yourself, right? Um, it was simple. It was beautiful. It was elegant. It was honestly one of the most flawless games, game designs I've seen in my life. When we started on crates from hell, it wasn't quite that yet. There were still multiple crates spawning around the level. Um, there were a few other design issues, but we we both saw a potential in that, so we kind of agreed to launch that on Xbox Live Arcade. Right. Then we realized we needed money, so we made a flash game called Radical Fishing, and before we knew it, we had made eighteen games, and it was seven years later.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, I you know, as I look through the list, there's obviously some uh, titles that a lot of people will know for the likes of, say, Nuclear Throne, for example, but um. There's, as as you mentioned, there are eighteen different tiles. There's a lot of work that's gone in over the years, and a lot of refinement, a lot of growth, a lot of change. Uh, certainly, one of the things that that always sticks out for me is the the update history on Nuclear Throne. The, the was it a hundred consecutive weeks or something along those lines of yep. of updates, which was that's mind blowing. I think by anyone's standards at any at any point in their career, that that's really really impressive. Uh, was there were there any questions uh, between the two of you? Like, what, what are we doing here when as you get to week twenty? Of, of what ended up being 100
1: we never had time to think just uh, that, just keep going yeah that was the strange thing about Vlambear is when we started we had this idea that we both had a twitter account right small twitter account and we created Vlambear as this persona so that i could i could sound a bit more hipster and jw could sound a bit more
0: serious uh yes let's say serious <laughs>
1: um and, and the idea was that um, that persona would sort of sit between our two personalities and allow both of us to speak through a voice that felt comfortable enough but also reflected the other person's uh, interests and the other person's personality. So we created Flambeer, and, and the analogy we used is, think of it like a, a minecart coaster, right? We have a Twitter account, and that means that we're going to push... This minecart up as far as we can, basically, like send our followers to it. And then, if everything's okay, the two follower bases that we have combined going to the Vlambear account would mean that the Vlambear account would end up bigger than our accounts, right?
0: All things going well. You'd think so, yeah.
1: And then we would use the Vlambear account to send people back to our individual accounts because we weren't planning on keeping Vlambear going. So, the analogy was a minecart. We would push it up, we would hop in, it would roll down go faster than it could before and then go up the hill much further so that when we would push again we didn't have to push as far to reach where we started and then we could push that's higher that's a fantastic way to put it and we would just keep doing that now the reality of what happened is we pushed the minecart and it started rolling downhill and we forgot to jump in it and we just started running after it as it sped away from us <laughs> and life started making less and less sense and it took until Getting after behind thrown Before we had a moment to think. Everything between that just happened. Like everything happened. We were probably Devolver Digital's first indie game. Right? We introduced them to the Hotline Miami people. We um, did ridiculous fishing. We did Luftrausers. We became the, 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 the the, the front line in a fight against cloning that was discussed in the New York Times and Washington Post. We helped PlayStation... Uh, design indie program we um i started traveling the world started speaking everywhere i made prescott which is still the most used like probably one of the most used indie tools in the world uh used it's by a game.
0: fantastic resource and we'll definitely dive into that one as well
1: right like games from like no man's sky to like octodat have used that um started teaching started traveling um uh, made win won an apple design award almost went out of business, got saved by a Canadian company. Nuclear Throne happened. We were the first game to ever sell a copy on Twitch. Uh, t- t- things happened. They just happened. And then we, you know, we Which tried to makes your text-
0: mind card analogy so fascinating and so, I guess, ret- uh, retrospectively, 100% on the money.
1: Right. That's exactly what happened. Like, it's exactly what happened. We just never caught up with the minecart until after Nuclear Throne. And by the time we reached it, Vlambeer was a multi-award-winning company. It was a well-known and respected company. It made a very stable income. Um, I had won or was about to win the GDC Ambassador Award uh yes. for my work traveling around the world and like trying to make opportunities happen for people across the language barrier um and then like absolutely a Throne, there was this moment where we were about like whew, we did you know a hundred updates in a row we had pretty much we weren't the first but we probably popularized the idea of dev streaming um and we sat there and we were exhausted and we looked at each other and we were like, okay, it's time to take a break. And that Yeah, break... I
0: was about to ask, like, how did you know after a hundred updates to say, okay, we, we need to catch our breath here. We need to either take a little break or redirect our focus elsewhere. So when
1: Ridiculous Fishing got cloned uh, in 2011, uh, 2012, we'd been working on Vlamber for two years and everything had been going so well. Everything had been going so well that we definitely worked too hard, right? And when the clone hit, that was the first thing that ever happened in the history of Beer, and it just took us out. Like, we... it It was like a gut punch, and we realized in that moment that we had messed up, because... I would open up my laptop, and I would stare at the screen, and there would be a blinking cursor on the screen, and the blinking cursor would just split my head open. It felt like the headache was absolutely off the charts and i i didn't know the phrase at the time but i i had hit a burnout right i had definitely pushed myself too hard right?
0: Um, which i mean terrible. in retrospect not so not unsurprising at all but right. at the time might be very hard to grapple with
1: yeah i was 22 i I'd been trying to make games since i was six i had made a bunch of games super great box had been igf nominated radical fishing had turned into uh, an ios game that I really loved and thought was going to do really well and we were halfway and um, here I sit in front of my computer, unable to use my computer
0: you know how scary that been, is? It would have I... been hard to get your head around because at the age of 22 typically, or I'd speak for everyone, but typically at the age of 22 you, you kind of feel invincible in a lot of ways so then to be kind of struck down in a way,
1: it you to be completely lost. It was really scary because this was all I was good at I'd spend my entire life getting good at this, right? This this was it. This was the thing that I had dedicated my life to since I was six, was modding, level editing, stuff like that. And it was... The
0: J.W. Was, feeling the, like, was riding that same ride with you. Was he feeling much the same at the time?
1: Yeah, we had... I remember a conversation in a bar that was an indie meetup. Uh, J.W. started the indie meetups in the Netherlands, pretty much. And um, we're in a bar sitting on a... It might have been a snooker table. I don't remember. Just kind of yeah. sat there, and we stared ahead. We stared ahead of ourselves, and we just kind of went like, "So, we gonna quit?" I just kind of like, "I guess." I like, yeah. And then we didn't. We just didn't. I don't know why we didn't, but we didn't. Um, so it wasn't
0: the spark of another idea. It was just, I, I don't know, uh, failing tired. to follow through. I guess on that agreement.
1: Right. Yeah, we were just tired. We were too tired to quit. Uh, so it's we continued.
0: <laughs> we laugh at it, but it's, it's, I guess, it, yeah, it's a thing. So. Yeah.
1: So we continued. And um, then the company started running out of money. And we had this rule that if we had less than three months of money on the bank account, we would drop everything and make a game. But we didn't have the energy. So then we had two months of energy. And then we had uh, two oh, months dear. of money. And then we had one month of money. And then a Canadian, tiny Canadian company called um, Halfbot uh, Games reached out to us. And Hothbot had made a game called uh, The Blocks Cometh. And it was this little iOS. Yep. And um, it, was this, it was this really smooth, very well-controlled iOS action shooter. And they came to us because their game had been cloned before. And they saw our story. And they reached out to us and they were just like, can we help? And we said, we don't know how you would how you would help and they basically said is there anything we can do uh to help we can do we can do we can do mobile development we can do like whatever and we said like well can you port super Crate box and they said yeah we can do that and we we're like but can you get the controls right on ios and they're like yeah absolutely and we didn't believe them and they sent us the block blocks comment and we were like okay actually we believe you um
0: that's so they all talk. It, that... it wasn't. It wasn't giving them the game for a little while, or the you know what they needed to make the game for a little while, and actually waiting till the proof was in the pudding. You were already confident just based on getting your hands on when the box cometh.
1: Well, the funny part is uh, Melvin, who was the it was a, a two person team. Derek, Derek Laufman and Melvin Samuel. Uh, Melvin was the programmer. and Melvin requested the source code, and I knew what the source code looked like because JW had programmed it, and JW is a He's much better now. He was an incredibly messy programmer back then. So I told Melvin, like, listen, mate, I'm a programmer. And I'm going to tell you right now, this code is useless. But yes, it it functionally functions. But it's just like porting this, like redoing this. It's not going to be a good time. And Melvin insisted. And the funniest thing. Honestly, one of my favorite jokes in the in the games industry so far has been he convinced me to send the source. I send him the source and he's, he attached it back and sent it back to me and said, you're right, this is useless. <laughs> uh, as if he was returning it to me. And, yeah, return um, the sender. He, um, they actually went and they I think they measured it like in pixels with like screenshots. They measured the the shotgun spread and the jump height and stuff like that. Um, and basically reverse engineered and reprogrammed the game. And uh released it on iOS and that's what financially saved us. Um well,
0: that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, we own a lot of things, Derek Laufmann and Melvin Samuel. And um Then I was angry. I remember being angry. Like the that second breath of Lambeer that somehow given us energy as well. And I decided that if we were going to go down, then I was at least going to take the company that cloned us down with us, right? Oh, yeah, okay. And I didn't know how. All I knew is that I needed people to know that they were a bunch of thieves, effectively. So I did the only reasonable thing I could come up with, and that is I emailed literally everybody. Uh, I emailed all the games press. I emailed all the... Um, I emailed TV stations, I emailed every newspaper in the world from to make uh, heard. Le Monde to a Japanese newspaper to the New York Times, and I knew it was a long shot. I knew that was not going to work, right? Um,
0: but as, as you phrased it, it was kind of a scattergun approach, and I guess the logic might be that someone might pick it up?
1: Right. Now, here's what happened. Everybody picked it up. So... <laughs> before we knew it there was this interesting it was obviously this interesting human story right like what is the value of creativity in a world that is run by money right like the naive like young artists against the reality of business um there was an interesting human story minds. right and ios was this big uh evolution that had just started happening so everybody kind of wanted to write something about ios and this made for an interesting story that wasn't just like, look at how much money Apple is making. So everybody took the story. So um, suddenly we were famous. Suddenly we were like industry leaders or thought leaders or whatever. Um,
0: was it weird though in the sense that, like you, you say you're famous, and it's obviously off the back of kind of reaching out like that. Did Was there any concern that, you might have been perceived. Obviously, the the titles you'd made to that point were fantastic. But was there a concern that because you've uh, you're you've been recognised because of the fact that you've been your work's being stolen in a way that um, you might have been being elevated simply because you were a victim of sorts?
1: Oh yeah, we were and absolutely was, was being
0: that a- in 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 an, an optic sense, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, publicly we were in the games industry. I think we were mostly perceived because we were fighting. Right? Not because yep. we were a victim, but because we were fighting. If we we, if we had stopped there, if Lambert would have, if that snooker table conversation would have happened uh, and it would have gone that way, we would have just faded out and, you know, 200 people would have remembered us. Um,
0: and the Thieves would have won.
1: Yeah, and we couldn't let that happen. So um, that changed everything. And JW dealt with the anger the best way he could, which is he made a game. Uh, He made trousers, which is the angriest game I've ever played because I know where the anger comes from. Um, So, we picked back up Ridiculous Fishing. Uh, Us and the team, Zach Gage, Greg Woolwind, um, Eirik Surka was doing the music. Picked up the game again after we did a road trip. Me, Zach, Mike and Greg. Mike and Greg used to work together. Mike wasn't actually on Ridiculous Fishing, but we just decided to do it. came on board for this. Right. We decided to do a road trip from PAX to uh, PAX in Seattle to New York. Yeah. Just like a good week drive, right? Uh we called it the week of hatred because at the end of it either we were gonna finish this game or we were gonna hate each other forever. <laughs> Being stuck with each other for a week. And um I guess I guess did... it could have that effect. Right. We did that road trip and it was gorgeous. And we arrived in New York and stuff just started moving again. And we'd been cloned and we had lost that. But we had also become very loud and very seen and very heard. And we hoped that that momentum would carry us forward. So
0: that was your next kind of swing in the in the minecart ride there that you needed.
1: If we were gonna it, momentum we were not going to not make Ridiculous Fishing anymore. We needed to finish Ridiculous Fishing, even if it was just to prove to ourselves that a creative game made by its creators will always be better than a cynical clone made by somebody who's just looking out to steal for money, right? So we endeavored to make Ridiculous Fishing the best game we could. And it it wasn't a smooth development process, right? All of us were sort of recovering from that Emotional blow. beer was yeah, suddenly be very well known. Uh, all of us had released like things in the meanwhile. Um, and it was weird because when we started on Ridiculous Fishing, Zach Gage was best known for lose lose and maybe BitPilot, a lose lose with space invaders that would delete files from your computer if you shot an <laughs> enemy. Um Greg Woolwind was best known for his collaboration with Mike, Mike and Greg, uh, working on a game called Solop Skier. And we'd made yeah. Super Trade Box. None of us were particularly, like, big developers at that point. But by the time Ridiculous Fishing was getting released, uh, each of us had released additional work that was very highly respected and very highly... um And we had become we bigger. We had turned into a a band, right? Um A band of of notable developers. So when the game launched the darndest thing happened, which is just, I don't know if it was true, but it felt like the entire games industry just stood up and like lifted us in the biggest spotlight they could possibly find us. And from the press to Apple itself, uh, spotlighting the game as the game of the week, um, everybody in the games industry that I can remember from those days, like tweeting about it, talking about it, discussing it, um, Everybody was rooting for this game.
0: Must have been so heartwarming, though. After everything you'd been through, to have been embraced just, that way.
1: I just cried for a day straight. I think. Uh, <laughs> I was exhausted. No, I can imagine, and I don't blame I was, you in the slightest. I was tired, and I was exhausted, and I was because you have to imagine for 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 Greg and Zach and Jw and Ietic, the making the game was the challenge, right? They had to make a better game than the clone. For me that launch, that was me, right? Getting the marketing right, making sure that we got front page at Apple, making sure that the press knew about the game, that they had access to all the files they needed. I, the responsibility that I felt was uh, crushing because if the game was good, it was obvious the game was good. It was a great game. Um, If it didn't go, it would have been me. Right, that's what it felt like. So Yeah, okay. I did everything I could. And then me and JW did a video. I don't even know what we did the video on. And clicked the launch button. And sat back. And the game went live. And the reviews came up. And the reviews were like 98. Five out of five. Uh, game yeah, of and the rest week. is
0: history in that respect.
1: And we woke up the next day and we checked the statistics and overnight, we had gone from small studio to a game studio, right? Um,
0: what you had personally been working towards with some of those those that business perspective that you were trying to bring to everything.
1: Right. Yeah, it worked. It was done. We had proven it. We had proven not only that creative work will always always, in the end, will always prevail over a clone. And I know that's naive and I know that's not true, but it felt like we had proven that, um, and I well, finally... and
0: finally one isolated example.
1: Yeah, had. we we did we did, um, and then in terms of money, I had proven that this is a real job, and I could go back to dad, and I actually showed him the bank account, and he just looked at it, and he's like, "Okay," <laughs> and that was, it. that was that was that the was approval it. that
0: you'd been looking for.
1: Yep, that was it. Um, That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. So yeah, I think was it, I cried, Was it challenging in that a
0: period in the lead up though, where you're still you're you're out there and you're working and you're working and you're trying to prove this to the, to the family, but the proof is for whatever better phrase, the proof's not in the pudding yet. What, yeah, what I, was that like? Trying to I guess convince them and maybe in some was, ways even pitch them on the ideas and how this will become a thing. Was that challenging?
1: Yeah, I mean I I kind of gave up honestly. Like I, I wanted them to understand, and I think my mom always my mom being the Dutch one, right? I think she always uh, tried to understand and she was secretly reading games news and eventually led to her actually being a gamer nowadays, but... Um,
0: yes, great Twitter account there. That, uh, <laughs> I think Did it kick off with Final Fantasy 15, if I remember? Final that Fantasy 15, began? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: correct. Uh, my dad was Fascinating part.
0: to see those insights.
1: Right, yeah, it's fascinating to see somebody who, you know, she's she's over the age of 60 at this point. She's had 60 years without games. And she's bringing that perspective to games, where most of us, we grow up with games. So to us, a broken wall in a building is like, oh, there's something, there's something valuable behind it. To her, a broken wall in a building is like, this building seems unstable. We should go outside, which is, we should keep away from it. Genuinely, the smart thing to do. But we've just been taught a language that we're not even aware of that we speak fluently, right? Yeah,
0: it's uh, really my, quite interesting in that respect.
1: Yeah, my mom revealed that to me. My dad was very different. My dad. My dad thought of game development, as uh, he always said, like, Rami. one day you have to get a real job, right? You can't just keep playing Nintendo and just thinking that people will pay you money for that. And um, I proved him wrong on the paying money thing, and that reassured him. But he still thought of my job as, as playing, playing games. And it wasn't until 2018, when I won the GDC Ambassador Award, that I flew him out to San Francisco... And I will I will never forget this because this is the other time I cried for a day, I think. Um He came to San Francisco and the person that was gonna introduce me was this uh Iranian man, poria Torkin. Uh, he's an yes. an old an old friend of mine from the Netherlands. Um and I just really wanted a Middle Eastern or Arab or, you know, like somebody close to my culture to introduce me. And poria was just a very obvious picture to me. Fit. So, Bodhi was going to introduce me, but the fun thing between Persian and Arabic is that we actually pronounce things differently. We, we have our own words, we have our own vocabulary, um, but we use the same script, just like French and English. We use the same letters, but they're completely different languages. In totally different ways. Right. So, that's the same, that's, that's true as well for uh, Farsi and Egyptian. So, I have seven Names, right? I have seven Arabic names Rami Ibrahim, Mahmoud, Hanafi, Ismail, Ali And yeah. um, Puriya insisted on introducing me with my full name,
0: which sounded like a good idea. <laughs> in execution, didn't quite work out.
1: But was really hard. And um, so Puriya, being the lovely human he is, he was uh, sitting there and uh, my mother had traveled out, and my father had traveled out, and uh, one of my siblings had traveled out. And Puriya and my dad started talking, and Puriya just kind of went like, so it's Rami Ibrahim Mahmoud Hanafi Ismail Mansur Ali Freer. And my dad just goes like, no, 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 not Hanafi. No, no, no it's not Hanafi, it's Hanafi. Rami Ibrahim, Rami Ibrahim Mahmoud Hanafi Ismail Mansur Ali Freer. Um, and the two of them just sat there sparring at the award table for a while. <laughs> and you could see Poria's sort of, like, level of confidence drop as he tried over and over imagine. to get it right. And my dad's going, like, no, no, that's wrong, that's wrong. Um, and so Poria went back And all
0: coming from a good place, too. But, yeah, it's just right. getting increasingly frustrating, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So Poria went backstage to, to start the introduction, and I was supposed to stay in the hall. And then after Poria announced me, I would run up on stage... Uh, and do a speech right and My dad just kind of looked around the room and it's this giant room in the Moscone Center in San Francisco and it was filled with people he just looks at me he's like are, are all these people here for you I'm like no dad no there's like 40 awards being handed out like some of them might be here for me but most of them are just here to watch the award ceremony it's just part of the event and uh, Poria goes on stage and he goes uh, I don't remember what he said, but it's my it's my pleasure to introduce my friend Rami Ibrahim Mahmoud Hanafi Ismail Musa. And during Hanafi, he looked at my dad, and my dad just kind of like nodded at him in a, in approval. And um, and I had to run up on, on onto the stage, and as I ran onto the stage, just this like standing ovation happened across the entire room, right? And which is it overwhelming. Lasted, it lasted so long that the that I got a a prompt on the teleprompter to just start talking.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Sorry, you're just gonna uh, need to cut through them. Just keep going. Push right, through.
1: Right. Just start talking. So I did. I did my little. I did my little speech, and I went back downstage and I sat back down next to my dad. And my dad looks at me and he goes like, I "Told you they were here for you." And I think that was the moment where my dad just went like, "You know what? I don't understand anything about this, but it's clear that Rami is doing a real job." Like. You don't, you don't get a standing ovation from a few thousand people, uh, for that long. For that long, if you're not doing something meaningful. So I think at that point he was convinced that there was money, and that there was respect, purpose. and that there was purpose. Right. That, um, and he might not have realized the 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 thing that was most momentous to me about that moment is that I I opened with salam alaikum. Uh, which is the first time on that stage, presumably the largest stage in games, any Arabic had ever been muttered, like uttered, is the first time that anybody spoke Arabic on that stage. Um, it was the first time two yeah, and that's brown
0: just context he doesn't have at that point.
1: Right, two brown people from the Middle East got on a stage to talk about games, uh, not about diversity, not about anything like,
0: but the art itself.
1: Big. Be- about us about ourselves about our friends about the games and um yeah for me that was really big for him for my dad you know seeing that his son had (laughs) made something out of himself uh, was something
0: at the time were you realizing how big and important that was or was it only in the cool light of day after the fact that you've gone hang on and everything you just said a moment a moment ago there you were actually able to digest that
1: At that point, I had grown into my role as a public figure pretty strongly, right? Like, that kind of happened by accident. I kind of had to grow up in public uh, on Twitter uh, with increasing amounts of of reach and influence. Um, I had turned into the the sort of, like, the traveling game developer at that point. So at that point, I was pretty aware of, like, how audience works, how public, like, perception works. So I, I knew that starting my... Starting my statement with "Assalamualaikum" was intentional. I knew that was momentous. I knew that was important, and I wanted to do it. Um, oh, fantastic! The way my dad responded was unexpected, because you know he's 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 a funny man, but him seeing that ovation and just going like "Told you so," that was a, that was the moment I realized that he had figured it out, right? Like he he knew he knew that it was okay.
0: Mom was just Which is proud. great in the sense that, you know, arguably the biggest moment of your career at that point. And that's that you've had that extra factor as well, where you, your dad's had this epiphany, this moment of realization that would have been overwhelming. I suppose, I think you said you were in tears off the back of all this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for, for a while. It, the award was strange in that it also, it wasn't just all good. Like, it kind of felt like the biggest award I could possibly get. Right it's really weird to get that award when you're 28 and like still feel like you're at the start of your career and people just go like, okay, well done. No, you know,
0: you're done. It was good. You can just ride off into the sunset and never be seen again.
1: Right. Uh, so it, it did throw me off balance for quite a while, honestly. But, um, in terms of what it did for my, for my dad's understanding of what I did, uh, it was, it was really big. Um, like I said, my mom had been behind me for all that time, but um, my dad wanted to support me, but he also wanted me to be okay, right? Yes, of um, course. in his Egyptian way of, of thinking about what okay is, and uh, that was the moment that it all clicked.
0: No, that's 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 an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, as we as we cycle back to the studio itself, and some incredible titles, we've listed quite a few of them already and obviously, as we said, 18 in total. This is, I guess, a, a favourite child sort of question. Do you have a Do you have a particular favourite from from your time with Fun Beer? Favourite game? Yeah, the, mm. that you worked on there. Is it too hard to separate? Because, I mean, you, you've mentioned quite a few of them and they clearly have a massive impact for a variety of different reasons. So I guess emotion plays a big part in that, I'm sure. Right. Do you have a particular favorite, though, if you were able to just separate the the work from maybe two, what was going on at the same there's time?
1: There's two games I'm really proud of. And funnily enough, they're two freeware games, and they were not related to the business at all. Um, oh, okay. The first one I was really proud of was not actually a Vlambeer game, but it was created in collaboration with uh, a few of our common collaborators, and including JW. Uh, it was called Glitch Hiker. And it was a yep. little... was a little pretty straightforward action game but it was created for a game jam where the theme was extinction and we decided to flip that on the game and we made a game that could go extinct so we gave the game lives everybody that played it used a life and if you played well enough you could earn your life back or even earn extra lives and as the game lost lives it would start to glitch start to break it would start to stutter the music would skip the graphics would get stuck and um as soon as the lives would run out, the game would become permanently unplayable. And, That's a uh,
0: fascinating idea.
1: Right? And it died in like a day. Uh, <laughs> Canadian developer killed it. Uh, Chevy Ray Johnson, who uh, recently realized, released Iconfell. Phenomenal Why, game. I can... uh, he used yeah, to is do this. Uh, yeah, he he used to make this engine called uh, Flashpunk, which Radical Fishing was actually made in. So we own Chevy a lot, and I don't hold it against him that he killed our weird jam game um (laughs) i think that was for me that that game was sort of a a special moment in that i realized that just how much potential was left in games that was untouched right how much could still be made that hadn't been made yet because everybody always says like oh there's no more game mechanics left there's no more twists left everything is just a remix of things that already exists and glitch hack to me was pretty clear evidence that that was nonsense right
0: it's just a matter of exploring those ideas and what's what's possible still with the medium
1: infinite space left and as i travel the world that has become even more clear right you have your war games and american war games tend to be about winning wars because that's how america thinks about wars right like the yes the thing you do is you go abroad you fight people and the worst thing that can happen is you don't come back so all of these war games are About going to places, fighting, and the worst thing that can happen is you don't come back. And then every now and then, the fantasy scenario of like a foreign country does to us what we do to other countries uh, happens, and then you fight invaders on American ground, and that's like the violence kick in, right? Um, That's the American way of looking at war. And then, German studio, like, um, you know, uh, Jagex does uh, Spec Ops.
0: Yes, which is an amazing title.
1: And it's a game about the trauma of war, And right? It's a game about being the aggressor in a war, like a faulty aggressor. It's a game about shame. It's a game about uh, hurt. It's a game about trauma, about losing, losing it, um, which seems very fitting with the German culture of shame towards the Second World War, right? Um, or you play a war game by a Polish studio, and they make a game about surviving a war because Poland doesn't fight wars wars happen to Poland right uh so yeah, they make it happens like,
0: around them and to them
1: right uh so they make a game and they make this war of mine um and as i started seeing that that every country in the world can take the most rote boring um genre uh the well boring is not the right word but repetitive predictable genre
0: and completely and flip it on its head
1: just turn it into something entirely different i'm like there are millions of games out there that still have to be made that just have never gotten the chance to be made uh for me that is fascinating right that that is part of why i do what i do part of why i do the travel is because i believe we are missing out
0: and i guess that like that segues um into i mean you you've been quite outspoken recently when it comes to uh six days in fallujah for example and um and a lot of a lot of your concerns around that particular game and I think you've probably outlined a lot of your perspective through what you've just discussed there. But it's been really, really interesting to see what you've had to say about that particular title and and the many controversies surrounding that in its lead up to launch. I believe, right, if, if things later go to schedule year. for them, I think it's meant to be later this year. Yeah, it'll um, launch.
1: It'll probably do well. The, here's the thing: I I have a problem with the re- misrepresentation of Muslims and Arabs in Western media. Right, it's yes. kind of it, you kind of have to be if you're. An Arab Muslim, like <laughs> we're the bad guys. Like I, it's not healthy to always be the bad guys in games. Um, yeah. the thing, the thing that gets me about Six Days in Fallujah, is that it's presenting itself as a documentary, right? It's presenting itself as this is what happened, and here's how you get a real insight in what happens. But it isn't truthful. Uh, it pretends that the the second siege of Fallujah was a fight against um, al-Qaeda, which wasn't actually present in the, sti- in the city until years later. Um, it suggests that it was a fight against terrorism to liberate the city, even though it was a manhunt for one specific person. It pretends that no war crimes or atrocities were committed, uh, even though they were documented well enough that they were discussed in the UK Parliament uh because the use of white phosphorus as a weapon was prohibited by the rules of war um it's not a documentary it's a game that is 100 percent meant to be a video game that is fun and that helps and dear empathy for the u.s military that was there
0: yeah it devolves back to what you were talking about before which is you know americans go to war and they win a war
1: and the worst thing that could happen is you don't come back right um no, here's so in the that thing. sense,
0: regardless of what they might be attempting to do, it's ultimately saying nothing nothing that New. It's, uh, you know, prior titles haven't already said or done, just right. a different setting.
1: The only thing that's different is that they are engaging what is actually blatantly history right, rewrites. Right? Uh, if they call that game Six Days in La Fuja, I would still be annoyed by it, but okay. But they're not actually developing Fallujah. They're randomizing the city. It's a roguelike. Right? They're not actually representing what happened They're making up a new story that makes the U.S. Army sound better, the U.S. military. And the thing that gets me is when you tell me that there is a work of media. Drop game. I don't care about game. There's a work of media that is made by a person that has had large projects in the past funded by a military organization, military organization that committed war crimes in a foreign country, and that now a piece of media is being made that endears empathy for that military organization while erasing the war crimes they've committed, and that's a history rewrite. And I don't care what medium Absolutely. that is. I don't care whether that is a newspaper. I don't care whether that's a movie. I don't care whether that's a song. I care that the people in Fallujah deserve that if their suffering is exploited for money, that they not be censored, that they get to speak their truth. That they get to talk about what happened to them and the atrocities that were committed to them um, for sake of a manhunt, right? Um, and that's the thing that gets me. Like, I'm I'm desensitized to my people being shot in video games. I know. We get shot. It's I mean, annoying. Horrible. It frustrates me. But you know, when we get represented in games, there's more effort that goes into making sure that our people... Fly through the air nicely with good ragdoll physics. Then there is effort into making sure that the street signs actually are Arabic, right? Like I'm used to. It. I hate that I'm used to it, but I'm used to it. But this, how can a, how can a person feel okay with that? I'm I'm not sure how people justify a history rewrite of a real war about a city where the ground is still radioactive. From the bullets the the uh, uranium depleted bullets that are in the ground how can how can anybody live with that idea that these people's suffering is now being exploited to make money for a guy that took money from the military organization that committed those war crimes like it just blows my mind blows my mind that this is a thing that is happening
0: yeah, and I mean th- thankfully there's been you know people like yourself that have been really strong about this. Um, since since it's kind of resurfaced, and I guess oh, I can't remember how many years ago was it when when the game first popped on the radar. The initial, okay, just that was a lot, a lot further ago than right. I realized. But uh, it's uh, it's I'm really thankful that there are people like yourself that are really really informed and really understanding this thing and are saying what needs to be said. Because I mean, it may not impact the ultimate. As you said yourself, the game's probably going to launch this year. Right. is on track to apparently and you know may- maybe it has no impact there but the fact that the conversation is right. being had hopefully the- has some sort of longer tail to it that that's influences exactly the hope. other decisions going forward and
1: the-, the thing is every time you mention the game every time i speak up against it there's people that learn about the game and buy it right every this conversation will probably lead to somebody going yeah i should give that game a go or you know people going yeah, I'd like to shoot some Muslims or it sounds good to shoot some Iraqis like that. There's going to be people like I've, that every, every time you I mention.
0: I feel horribly complicit now. But that's the
1: thing. There's no way around having this discussion without marketing the game. And I think they know that because there's no reason to call it six days in Fallujah if you're not actually representing Fallujah, right? It's not that the yeah. city is procedurally generated. So what's the point of calling it Fallujah? It's because the shock value uh, 10 years ago, it killed the game. They know that the world has changed. And I think they know that right now, controversy, if you're an independent developer, it'll just make more people know about the game. They also any, bought any out... Any
0: news is good news. That sort of mentality. Also,
1: exactly. They also bought out the front page of IGN. Like, they have they have money, right? Um, so, the way I'm seeing it is this game is going to come out and chances are this game is going to do well. But if in the industry we can start a conversation about, hey, what do we accept? then it's all worth it, I guess. Right. Is history rewriting something we want in games? And if that is true, then why won't a Palestinian game about the Gaza War, why is that blocked on the iOS store from launching? Right? right. Why is that that not allowed? Because that one is political, apparently. That's not allowed. What happens when um, who's the U.S. scared of? What happens when China starts releasing games that are just blatant lies about the U.S.?
0: it becomes a very slippery slope, doesn't it?
1: Right. Well, at that point, if we're saying history, rewrites are fine and people can just present everything as a documentary and um, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. We don't we don't care. Um, I, I mean, the thing, it, it could be a slippery slope, but I don't really believe that the US is that fair. I, I believe it will be hypocritical and things that don't fit will be prohibited the and things that fit will be allowed, because I've seen that with uh, Lila's in the Shadow in the Shadows of War, which was that Palestinian game that I talked about. There's games on yeah. the App Store where you play an Israeli missile with an Israeli flag on it, destroying targets. But Laila, uh Shadows of War, which didn't represent, didn't have a single flag in it, didn't make any reference to Israel, didn't make any reference to Palestine, but represented a moment from the Gaza war in which four innocent kids playing soccer were blown up by a missile. Uh, that game got banned rejected. for being political. So at that point, you know, you kind of lose faith that things are fair, and I know things aren't fair. I get random checked every flight I do. Like, it, things aren't fair. Um, but right now, this oh, is it's a, still so
0: awful, though, to to hear.
1: This is the litmus test, right? We get to see whether Sony and Microsoft are actually fair, um, and whether they will consider the impact of, you know, setting a precedent that absolutely historical rewrites are allowed on our platform. I'm just curious what they're going to do. Steam doesn't care. I know Steam doesn't care. Steam will just release the game, because as long as it fits within the laws, they're okay with it.
0: Then they're fine with it. Anything they're goes. Fine but with yes, there, there is. You're right. There is that question there about Sony and and Microsoft and the influence of the bottom line. Yep. So we'll like see. This.
1: We'll see what they care more about. More like the legacy and harm caused against an entire nation. And seeing their history rewind, the opportunity of other nations and military states, propaganda states as well, to release propaganda onto those platforms that might harm the U.S. Um, or what did they care more about money?
0: I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, it's 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 gonna be really interesting. I guess we're gonna get some answers really really soon. Right. Well, le- le- leaping off that point, but still kind of saying somewhat within the within the field. One of the big things that you've um, been a part of over the journey is, is kind of the uh, a discussion between more diversity within video games and the idea, uh, sorry, within development and the community, but also versus inclusivity. And that, I was doing a lot of reading on some of your commentary in that space and I was really, really fascinated by that. And it makes all the sense in the world, but it's, it's still interesting to, to this day the, the default, I guess, terminology is diversity in games. Great. Um, and yeah. I think we've touched on it a little bit there with the, with the six days conversation. But wh- the, where do you feel like that's at at this point? The, the problem how, I have has there with, been progress.
1: Right. So one of the things so over the past ten years, I've spent a lot of my time traveling around the world trying to figure out how I can help small communities around the world access the resources, the knowledge, the the press, the um, the networks that exist around the world, right? Yes. And there's a few things you run into everywhere, right? Um but uh, around the world, distance to industry events is a big one, the language barrier is a really big one, and differences in ideology is a really big one.
0: Yeah. Okay. And the thing
1: and the thing I realized, I was in Russia, I think, and I asked people like, "You know how how are things with diversity here?" And they're like, "Diversity isn't for us." I'm like, "What do you mean it isn't for us?" They're like, "That's an American word about American issues." And I was kind of taken aback by that because I was like, well, but isn't it good, right? Isn't that good? And they're like, no, they mean American women. They mean American people. They mean American. That's what they mean. That word isn't about us. Yeah, right? within their sphere. It's not about the Russians. Who cares about who cares about the Russians, right? They they knew that they understood that, that the word diversity is in English. I hadn't considered that. Um.
0: Well, something I... you really opened my eyes up to because I mean you know, I'm from Australia and it's a very for want of a better phrase it's a, it's a very whitewashed country and and ultimately deals with you know very similar things in a lot of respects to what the Americans do thankfully outside of the gun violence right. um, and it was upon reading your comments there that I just and I'm a, look, I'm a teacher um, professionally right. so I do have you know the understanding of what these words are meant to mean and context and those sort of things but I guess within the gaming space and the the industry, whether it's development or consumption or anywhere in between, I hadn't really considered it like I ought right. to in, in through through that through those lenses and
1: the just reading your barriers, comments on it really really fascinated me. The language barrier is kind of a mighty thing. If if you're a you know if you're a native English speaker, most of the world is and utterly foreign to you because most of the world has to speak your language to be able to communicate, right? The feeling yeah, of everything sure. being in a nuance, especially a, a, a discussion around something as sensitive as diversity. I, a lot of people around the world I meet just don't want to try. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to discuss it because they're worried if they get something wrong or they don't fit the the nuance and that's so required in those in those sensitive discussions that they're going to get in trouble despite them potentially agreeing what with what is being said if I told you we're going to have a discussion about uh, Tanoa uh, you would probably not have that discussion with me right if I said we're going to have a discussion about Tanoa and I want you to be precise in your language and not make and not you know like not insult any people uh, I'd be
0: doubting myself every step of the way regardless of intentions I'd be doubting myself in every step of the way
1: and that's just the Arabic word for diversity right so yeah for a lot of people diversity is not inclusive which is the the weirdest realization
0: irony of the whole thing
1: the other thing about diversity is that the concept of it is really difficult because i went to um, i went to bungie right and bungie has this this um this game destiny and in destiny there's this social space called the tower and um, the tower is the the social hub of
0: of destiny. The entire game.
1: right? And in the tower, there are signs in English, Portuguese, and Chinese,
0: which is incredible,
1: right? It's it's a great diversity of languages. And I was asked to do a speech there about um, about representation, a talk, and I started to talk with well that I love the tower. I loved it, and I adore the tower. I really do, and that I just loved seeing that there was English and Portuguese and Chinese, and that they had taken such care to to represent such a breadth of of um, the human experience. That I was sad that all the Arabs had apparently died, and you could just see the audience go like, "Ooh,
0: yeah." No, no one necessarily going in with that intent, but right by being absent. That's it the thing volumes. when you start
1: doing diversity you're th- you're kind of thinking of things in terms of like including specific groups, like checkboxes, right? Yeah. Um, inclusivity is the absence of any things that are unfair or that would block people's access to a space or to a, to a medium or to opportunity, right?
0: It breaks all the walls down.
1: That's the point. The point of inclusivity is that if the tower had no languages – that it would actually be more inclusive as a space than it is now. Because nobody would have to feel excluded. And perfectly inclusivity isn't possible. It just is not, right? There are paradoxes on earth. There are different ways of looking at things that we agree about. There are um, people that will not be able to appreciate or will not be able to participate in anything you make. For a variety
0: of different reasons.
1: For a variety of different reasons, from language to um, language to disability to um, religion to ideology to you know, like there Even are Even just
0: levels of access in terms of levels of access. Can I? Can't I but, access this title or whatever?
1: Right. So there are infinite reasons for things to be more or less accessible to people. But I think the point of inclusivity is to try and be inclusive as radically as possible. Right. I think the point of diversity is to give access to specific groups to fix a lack of a presence of a specific group. That one is a little
0: address an optical. Could be often. I think,
1: I, I think most diversity initiatives are genuinely very well meant and, 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 um, with the best intent. Right. Um, I do think that the notion of how we go about it might be flawed. And the fact that the language barrier has not been a topic in the industry uh, until game dev world, right? Which was an event I did where we translated the talks from speakers in eight languages into the other seven languages. Um, that kind of should show you that it doesn't quite work right now. That these discussions are being had in English, that the theory about it is in English, that the access to the spaces is in English, that um, the opportunities are usually American or American-European, that travel restrictions apply to most people around the world, that economical restrictions apply to most people around the world. Why did those topics never come up?
0: Yeah, Yeah, you really don't hear nearly enough about it. I, if I if did you a, do, it's from someone such as yourself who's really... I mean, you've got the platform to be able to right. propel that discussion.
1: And so I have, and I will continue to because I think it is... If there's anything useful I can do with my life, it would probably be that, right? To make this a discussion that we have. And I've become very aware of my position in games, right? That I'm a, a notable developer. Uh, people have... A friend of mine referred to it as like, Rami, you have to accept that you're an icon now, right? And I don't know if yeah. icon is the right word, but they very specifically used the word icon because they continued They said like, you have to remember that an icon is a beacon, right? It's to be inspiring. It's to to lead in a direction. It's to make people rally behind it, right? Or for what it stands for. I was like, okay. And then he continued. But you also have to remember that the The end result for any icon is that it gets torn down by what comes next. Right? That at the end of this. Sobering thought. Right. At the end of this, you will have served your purpose and succeeded at it or failed at it. At that point, hopefully the issue is fixed. But if it's not, it's your time to shut up and to let whatever the next thing is that people want to care about or that people uh, think is important happen.
0: And how does that sit with you? The the prospect of that playing out.
1: I've realised that the only S- especially thing especially if
0: wanted... I guess for whatever bit of phrase the job isn't done. Yeah, how does that has the the prospect of that sit with you?
1: If I can do the best I can, then I'm happy. Um, oh, good. I think over the years I've done a pretty good job of making these these topics a thing we discuss. Right, and it's not just me. There's lots of people that that have fought this fight. I've just had a platform that was impossible to miss, and that's fortunate. And I'm very privileged to have that. I think somewhere around now, probably it's time for me to pass that torch on, right, and to accept empowering that
0: empowering that next generation, for want of a better phrase,
1: right, to to let this run and to focus more specifically. On small things, like I think my time in the big politics of games, right, is has been very successful. I think I'm very proud of the things I've achieved and the uh, the attention that I've drawn to visas, to language, to the economy of living abroad, um, to the fact that if you have a submission form for a diversity initiative and the form is only in English, then it's not actually inclusive, right? Um, and I think that it's now just sort of an understood thing, right? I don't need to yell about that anymore. I don't need to be upset about that anymore. I think everybody understands somewhere that that's how it is, and um, that feels that feels like a success to me. And I'm not going to fix the world, right? That's not that's not an option. I can I, I can affect this little part of it, just this little part.
0: Yeah, if you can make that get... little part better, and and others can do similar things in their respective little pockets of the world, then all of a sudden, we as a as a, a human species, we're all on the right track
1: at right. that stage. So, I can change. I can only affect the games industry, and in the games industry, I think I can't say I've done a perfect job, but I'm pretty happy with what I've achieved, and I'll keep That's I'll keep fighting, right? I'll keep fighting, fight, right? Like I'm I'm gonna keep going with what I'm doing, but. I also feel like there are issues in the industry that affect all of us, right? Uh, Issues of fair compensation, issues of workload, issues of um, capitalism right now um, that in some ways are becoming very relevant to all of us, right? Whether you are in a majority country or a minority country, whether you are in a country where things are fair or unfair like a lot of the issues that i've had in trying to fix these uh, problems this money is um
0: it's getting full down to that bottom line
1: in the end a lot of it comes down to can you afford to make things better and i'm just an indie i don't have like a lot of people think i'm really rich i'm not really rich i've spent most of the money i've earned on trying to help people um trying to help communities around the world I um, mean, you've
0: spoken yourself about kind of traveling around the world and and doing various different things. You're the as you said, the the traveling game developer like that that comes at a cost,
1: right? Yeah, that, that and most of that was funded from Flambear. So, um, what?
0: And spinning off that one, one of the things that really really interests me. You you were talking before about kind of maybe the the smaller battles and those sorts of things, and obviously you do a lot of consultancy work, and we referenced some of that um, earlier on in the episode. But do you make it a bit more of a priority to? to explore regions or or teams or cultures or where there's i guess relative underrepresentation within the industry is that kind of something you're looking out for or is it still mostly looking for projects that maybe speak to you and you you feel like you can impact and and help That's- grow
1: I mean, so the way my consultancy is set up is that there's a 15-minute call that is 15 euros. There's a 30-minute call that's 30 euros. There's a 60-minute call a 100 euros. And if you're from any country that is not North America minus Mexico, if you're not in Europe, northwestern Europe, including Scandinavia, and if you're not in uh, Australia, sorry, um, or right. New Zealand, <laughs> um, then you can take a 20-minute call for free. Right? Yeah, okay. Um, the goal of my the goal of my consultancy is is twofold. On the one side, I think it's really important that people have access to affordable or free industry expertise, and it's very clear we can't rely on things like the Game Developers Conference to to create that for us. Right? Like we have to create that. Yes. Um, on the other side, I think for me, it's really important to keep a feeling for what's happening around the world, to see what issues people have in different parts of the world, to see what opportunities people have in parts of the world. Um, because part of that is 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 what I do, right? Is trying to figure out how to help places. And you can only know how to help places if you know what the problem is in places. So for me, that consultancy actually serves two, two different purposes. I help people, people help me. So I don't really like if somebody is poor in the US, right? Then I want them to use that free call as well. Like the point is to help. If I was charging real rates for that, price would be 10 times what it is, right? And yeah, my course. corporate rates for corporations are much higher. Um, but my. And my
0: I guess that's all driven by means i suppose
1: right for me the, the yeah. goal is really simple if i can take lots of money from the big companies with lots of money in the games industry and i can distribute that money or that opportunity cost to people that can't afford it people that don't have opportunities then i think i'm doing a good job and i think that's kind of turned i've turned my mission towards that i want to i want to i'm, I'm going to keep being loud about Things being fair for people around the world, people that have to travel, people that need visas, people that need access to language. On the flip side, um, I want to find money. I want to find money for these things, because with relatively small amounts of money, you can change everything for a team. Like, Vlaambeer started on $10,000 from radical Fishing. That $10,000 was all we needed to turn into Vlaambeer, Right. Yeah, and that's it's in the netherlands which is a pretty wealthy country where a dollar is approximately worth a dollar right but you go yeah. around the world and you see all these countries all these people making incredible games in really rough circumstances without access to things if you give a lot of these people ten thousand dollars that's worth way more than ten thousand dollars because their currency is weaker their economy is weaker things are cheaper uh, you look at something and even, like
0: and even outside of the actual financial thing, it's also it's a chance, it's an opportunity. Right. That's um, it. It's maybe a, you know an injection of hope, that sort of thing, which is just, I mean, that's faith. You, you can't Com- calculate the the value of that.
1: Exactly, confidence. That confidence that I wanted with my dad. Having somebody from outside fund your work is that same type of confidence. It allows you to go to your parents and say, like, hey, look, this is real. This matters um so for me i think there's a challenge there i want to figure out how there are ways if there are ways to to fund these kind of things or and to make that happen scale. yeah yeah i don't well, know how uh, i don't know i don't know how yet but i'll figure it out
0: you you said yourself you, you think you're doing a good job and i mean i'm just one person and i'm just sitting on the outside here but i think you're doing a fantastic job of that and thank and, you and i helping appreciate elevate that. the the smaller parties who are trying to find their way and like i said before maybe maybe the they've lost any and all hope that they might be able to make it and you're giving them a chance. And that's maybe, yeah. maybe that's the best that uh, that you can do. And that, that obviously, you know, you're working with a lot of parties so, and you can't be everywhere at once. So right. giving people a chance is maybe all they need, but they, they can take that bull by the horns and who knows where it leads. Right. Them. It's,
1: the um, I, think, I
0: think it's fantastic.
1: Thank you. The, um the, the way I always, I always have been taught about to think about charity is the best charity work you can do is the type of work, where you make yourself obsolete right so yeah i have to there's two there's two ends to the story of me doing this kind of work is either the icon comes down i become obsolete or i end uh, whatever that might be um and i'm honestly i'm okay with all three of those endings as long as what i've done has been useful I, you know, I say I've, I've done a good job. I, I, I don't know, like like many things, that is not something I necessarily internally feel. It's something that I've sort of derived from the fact that I've received awards for it and people thank me for that kind of stuff. But you always feel you can do better. Um, but you try. And I think if I can be ho- helpful to even just one more person every day, then I'm happy. You know, I can I can make one game every three years, or I can help three hundred games in a year. So I'll help three hundred games in a year, and maybe you know, somewhere in the near future, I'll also start working on my own games again. But for now, helping people is uh, that's been really lovely.
0: Yeah. So as we begin to wind things down for this conversation, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared so far. The end of Lambie. uh, Mm -hmm. How did? How did that conversation play out?
1: It was actually probably the smoothest conversation I've had with JW because we'd been waiting to quit Vlambeer for about 10 years, right? Um, The funny thing about Vlambeer is me and JW didn't like each other, right? But the thing that was special about that collaboration, I think, was that when it came to the things that really mattered, we never argued. There was never a discussion. When Ridiculous Fishing came out and... We were suddenly wealthy, right? I went to JW and I said, mate, listen, over the past two or three years, I've traveled and I've done talks in the US and London and Canada and uh, a few other places around Europe. And I started getting these emails from like Uruguay and Indonesia and uh, um, India and um, the Middle East and South Africa and whether I could come speak there. And we'll go, of course, can you pay for my flight? Because I was poor, right? And they were like, no, we're poor. And I'm like, oh, then it's going to be hard. I went to JW and I explained that. And I said, can I take some money and fly to all of those places and talk there? And he, the, I don't know the exact quote, but the thing he said was basically along the lines of, what's the point of making money if you're not going to do something good with it? And, you know, I guess I had to respect that hipster attitude towards money. <laughs> um, and if there was ever a big, if if there was ever a big decision or a thing that was important to us, there was never discussion. If one of us needed time off, there was never discussion. If um, either of us wanted to be participate in a charity thing, there was never discussion. And when the moment came that Flamber was to shut down really the only discussion that happened was when, um, and not when as in like this year or next year or in 10 years, no, when as in like what is the right date? And we realized that, I don't know how this decision-making process went in JWs had because usually we would post-mortem things, but obviously closing Flamborough didn't really have a post-mortem. not necessarily
0: require the same post-mortem, no.
1: Um, what happened in my head is I looked back at Flamberg and I saw a studio that with everything it did always made a statement right there was always a statement um radical fishing was you know a small flash game by a tiny studio but we negotiated that price up like nobody's business right and that was the yes. statement super great box was a design statement but it was also a statement in that it was released for free as a business card right and the point was to get fans and then hopefully the fans would pay money for Hold our next it. game Uh was a statement of anger, but also a statement of uh indie games launching on PlayStation. Right? That was relatively new back then that an indie would launch on something like a PlayStation. Um Ridiculous Fishing was to be the best iOS game ever made, but it was also a statement against clones, right? A press kit was a tool that we could have kept for ourselves, but we decided to make it public. Um,
0: which i mean as someone who uh, regularly is looking at uh, looking to speak to independent developers or you know larger developers for for this show and and for a lot of uh, <laughs> other like just media purposes obviously fantastic for for the studios to spread the word but also just an amazing resource for myself to dive through so thank you very much for for the birth of presskit too welcome.
1: Well, most welcome. Um, nuclear throne was the first game ever sold on twitch but it was also uh, sort of a, a I wouldn't say a revival of action roguelikes but it definitely like Enter the Gungeon was inspired by it and we know some other games the that were inspired speed. by it. Right. Tip of, a tip of the spear. Usually whatever we did uh, both in business and in design we were tip of the spear. Right. So then the question becomes can you make can you make shutting down a studio a statement? <laughs> I'd always believe that a statement needs to be loud and J.W. suggested that we quit Vlambeer, that we stop the studio on September 1st, 2020. And there's a very specific reason for that date. And it's because that was to be the 10th anniversary of Vlambeer It will be oh, 10 right, years. Oh, right, okay. And when he said that, I knew that was the right one. I knew that was the right date. Because what bigger statement is there than to say...
0: Happy 10th we're... birthday and we're out.
1: Exactly that. We have been here for 10 years. And in those 10 years, we have had incredible fortune. We have released genre-defining games. We have won beautiful awards. We've gotten to know so many people. We've turned from, you look at the start of Flambeer, two student dropouts. You look at the end of Flambeer, and you have JW as a very well-respected designer, right? A great thinker on, not just in terms of design, but also on business, right? He, uh, he yeah, Which is definitely um, not
0: something he was interested in at the beginning. Right,
1: he took apart that Raw Fury contract and like opened the discussion about contracts because his his savvy for the business of games has become so sharp um, and he uses it in a way that is so unique. Well, unique is not the right word, but so him, right? He's, he's very good at it because he wants to avoid it because he wants to not be part of it, because he wants to make sure that nobody else has to deal with it, right? Yes. Um, And me, having turned into me, whatever that means...
0: Well, I mean, um, everything we've just been discussing, really.
1: You compare those two, and you realize that there was no scandal, there was no bankruptcy, there was no fight, there was no disagreement. This was two people who spent a decade of their life on a roller coaster doing a mind cut an incredible range of things, uh, having made gone through stories that I can tell for the rest of my life. Um, having made incredible work, having achieved beautiful things, um, despite not liking each other still to this day, I think, um, and we're good we're good it's good we don't have to keep going we don't have to keep being Vlaander we can just quit and you know what
0: not a lot of people say that it's not a, a conversation there, here have you both as I guess a part of that conversation and deciding that September 1st was going to be the date was there ever from either view the but what if maybe down the road like, ha- have you left that door just slightly ajar for the both of yourselves, or is this a very no. definitive?
1: Yeah, Flamber yeah. needs to sleep. the The thing, the thing that made me happy was when we quit. Bolvere, who was, I think, our first collaborator, uh, artist on many of Flamber's games, drew the bear, the Flambert, um sleeping, and I thought. Wouldn't that be an amazing legacy? A studio that went to sleep. It didn't die. It didn't burn out. It didn't fizzle out. It just it just went to sleep.
0: It's time to rest. It rests. It rests. It has
1: done its job, right? Flambeer made statements when the statements were relevant. We helped nudge the industry in certain directions. Like, who gets to do that? Can you imagine yes. telling six-year-old me, sitting there with that computer with gorillas, that this would be me now right that this would have been the the list of things i've done who and, gets to and again, do that? this is
0: me as the observer with so much potentially still to, still to come i know we obviously spoke about the award <laughs> and kind of what that might typically represent but i'd argue with so much still to 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 provide for, for everyone within the industry
1: who knows who knows like in in arabic we say inshallah like if if god wills it um you know the there is a weird there's a weird like morbid reality in which you know I've been through a lot and i've been I've been in some situations where I definitely could have passed away or died, and you kind of feel like if i if I pass today or tomorrow like am I happy with what I've done and if I pass away today or tomorrow, I'm happy with what I've done. Right. I've had an incredible. I've had an incredible time, and if I get to do more, awesome. If I get to do more, if I get to help more people, if I get to make more games, awesome. But um,
0: I'll just put the stake in the ground right now and say, let's. I'm. I'm hoping very much that we're not talking about the end of uh, Rami anytime soon. But but I don't <laughs> understand so what too. you mean.
1: But as I say, inshallah, uh, we we can only. We, I am I am after all a Muslim, uh, yes. and uh for me part of part of that is recognizing that life is relatively fragile i spent uh, one of my trips in england like almost dying and being emergency lifted back to the netherlands for a surgery that if i hadn't had it when i had it i would have passed right um wow you you go through it's life So fickle. it's really fickle and that's the thing like that's okay like I think it's scary to a lot of people and I understand it's scary to a lot of people, but in many ways I've been in enough situations now where I feel like I've been fortunate enough and if I look at, if I look at things now I'm I've seen more of the world in thirty years than most people will in, in a lifetime. life. Right. I've seen of the more of the US than most Americans see. I've seen more of Europe than like I it's 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 been a very interesting life so far and i obviously i don't hope it's over anytime soon but if it were uh i would be pretty happy if it's not i'm just going to keep doing what i do i'm going to try and be helpful i'm going to try and make strange wonderful games i'm going to try and do it in a way that is sustainable that is help that is healthy that avoids people having that headache that we talked about earlier that burnout um yes. let's just try and leave the games industry a little better than we found it right if i can do that i'm happy
0: and looking from the outside i sincerely hope that uh, you're doing that amazing work for as long as possible as we in start to wind love. things down a couple of really quick questions uh is there anyone yep. out there that really inspires you in the way you go about your work on a on a day-to-day basis or maybe not even necessarily day to day, but is there anyone out there that really inspires you in about the way and the way you go about your work?
1: Not one person. I think it's, I think it's almost every. Yeah, it's everybody I've met that has to make games in circumstances that aren't as easy or as. And uh, game development is hard, but um, I've seen game developers that print out code because their computers might lose power for a week. And they oh, okay. try to fix bu- bugs on that. That's inspiring to me. That, despite how hard game development feels to me, in the Netherlands, that around the world there are hundreds of thousands of developers trying in much harder circumstances to make games, um, being so any...
0: and doing such an amazing job. Still,
1: right. If there's anything inspiring to me, it's it's all of them. Like literally all of them. There, there's nothing more inspiring than people that make games despite everything being against them. Um, sometimes stubbornly so
0: no, I, I like that response fantastically so I put a couple of little curly ones as we wrap up now if there's any game that you could be credited for in in any capacity what game would it be so having worked on in some sort of capacity
1: so a game that I would that I didn't work on, on that I would like to be credited on
0: yeah that you would have loved to have worked on in some way shape or form
1: split second was a racing game, arcade racing. Did I see game.
0: you bring this up on Twitter recently? I feel like this came up. This, I bring this, this game is not up. It's the first frequently. time that split seconds come up recently in my.
1: Um, the, I've always said memory. there's two games that I will go triple A for if I if I got them. Uh, the first one is Golden Sun, because I adore the Golden Sun series, and I thought it was such a fun, subversion of of uh, RPG formulas, and part of it is nostalgia. Feminately I Ultimately, underplayed. Part of it is nostalgia, right? But it's still a very good game. Um, the other one was Split Second, which was a racing game about exploding things in such a way that the racetrack changes. And I just think that there's a lot of potential in that game. It's a shame what happened to the studio that got bought and shut down. Um, yes. But I, part of me
0: just. Um, there's something to it, isn't there?
1: Part of me just wants to make an arc, like a really over the top racing game. I don't know why. It, it just something tickles about that so well, um, developers
0: publishers listening in yeah <laughs> this you know what to do at this point
1: right also nintendo give me give me golden sun y'all oh yeah that, that'd that be yeah that'd, yeah, be that'd also be a good
0: as a big golden sun <laughs> fan i'd be thrilled to see more of it and i'd be thrilled if you're at the helm or in some way responsible so he's he's ho- hoping in both respects <laughs> if you could replay any game for the first time so just dash your memories of it and get to re- experience that game from moment 1 no internet chirping in the background no spoil no one spoiling anything just you the game getting to experience it for the first time what would it be
1: um can I give two answers absolutely okay um the first one is mass effect especially yes. now with the legendary edition coming up when you um, get to play
0: that the first time,
1: right? I actually no. I'm gonna I'm gonna retract that because Mass Effect was very important to me uh, when I was growing up. Um, the first game came out when I was an, a high school student, and the last game came out when Valmier was about to release Ridiculous Fishing. Uh, that game was the only stable thing in, my life for in your life four, through that period for five, five years. years. Yeah, so, so I don't you, want to lose way. my memory. I don't want to lose that memory. Uh, let me keep that memory. Um, then then there's only one answer. It's, it's uh, Nier Automata. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Nier Automata was strange to me because it uses all you know about games against you, right? And in that... It's it it re- a lot, yes. In that it reveals that there is still a lot of room for games to do interesting work. And I think... With a, with a small spoiler, there's a moment near um, three-quarter point of the game where it plays the intro to the game. And I, I sat there staring at my computer at my uh, PlayStation, and I was outraged at how good that was. <laughs> I was just so angry at how good that was that you had effectively played two full games uh, already, and then the intro happened, and it was like playing it, honestly it felt like starting up Mass Effect Three right I'd been with these characters through two full games, and now the Strong finish at me the act the finishing act the defining act was going to start, and doing that within one game um blew my mind
0: just yeah it's quite it's quite incredible in that sense So i assume you're all over replicant at the moment now that it's out
1: i was actually playing it right before this call started and uh, i will drive home after this call ends and then i will play a little bit more near and go to bed
0: well i won't hold you up too much longer so that uh so that you can get straight to it uh rami thank you very very much for coming on the show and, and sharing those stories sharing those experiences and sharing all the wonderful work you're doing i really appreciate you coming on the show and and I really appreciate all the work that you've done for the industry so far. And as I've said a few times now, I, I really look forward to seeing what comes next and hope nothing but the best for you.
1: Thanks so much. It was, uh, it was a joy. Uh, I, had a, I had a great time. And uh, yeah, and, um, inshallah, we'll get to speak again a few years in the future and uh, yeah, catch up on our thing. If, uh,
0: if anyone is looking to reach out, get in touch or just see what you're up to, where would they be best to go?
1: So, um, the two best ways of um, keeping in touch is Twitter. Uh, that is T-H-A underscore R-A-M for Mary, I. Uh, T-H-A underscore Rami. Um, the second one is just simply by email. Um, if you have any questions or you're stuck with anything, uh, the two things you can do if you're a game developer uh, and you would like to you know, take me up on the consultancies that we've talked about or anything, um, if you head to ramiesmail.com or um, the pin tweet on my Twitter profile or you email me at info at uh, we can figure out something and hopefully chat about your work and you know uh, what we can do to help.
0: It's how we spoke and it's, it's been great to have been able to put this together. Thank you again so much for coming on the show, Rami.
1: Cheers, thanks for having me.
0: And listeners, as always, thank you much for listening. I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at PaulJamesGames on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Rami's story. Thank you much for listening, and I'll see you next time.